Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and said, er, and, and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we gather to hear you speak, not a man, but to hear you and your word be declared. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts this morning be glorifying to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to drink the Kool-Aid? What does it mean to drink the Kool-Aid? The phrase, he drank the Kool-Aid, comes actually from quite a terrible event that happened in 1978 in Jonestown, Guyana, South America, where over 900 members of a cult either forcibly or willfully drank a flavor-aid, not a Kool-Aid, the company Kool-Aid would like you to know that, a flavored drink that was mixed with poison, and of course that resulted in their deaths. Now this event popularized this phrase for nearly 50 years now, and we use it uh, pretty commonly. What it means in our day, though, is typically we're saying that someone has dedicated themselves, committed themselves to something in a pretty serious way to support a cause, a purpose, or a person. What would someone say you've drank the Kool-Aid about? Who is it or what is it that you are so committed to that you shape your life around it? You make your schedule in light of it and you refuse to go without it. What or who do you think about most during the day? What is it that you make yourself a disciple of? That person, that thing that you are committed to learn about, to love, and to live for? We are willing to be disciples of so many popular personalities, political speakers, health gurus, sports teams, social causes, and yet none of them, not one, can promise or give you life beyond this one. 
all of them will give you a drink that inevitably will lead to death. Except one. Except one. Matthew 28 today is telling us about that one. About the one God-man who was resurrected from the dead, never to die again. And that he, with all authority in heaven and on earth, with all authority, calls us to become his disciples. And then to go and make disciples. Why? So that all might live with him. That you might live with him. Said simpler still, the, the main idea is this. You'll see it in your bulletin. Because the resurrected Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, you, you must become his disciple. We could add to that, you must become his disciple-making disciple. Now we're going to work through this text with three questions, just three. Who is this man, Jesus? What is his mission or commission? And finally, who or what are the means of its fulfillment? Now, kids, I have one question for you that if you can tell me this at the end of the service, Pastor Matt began this last week and it's, it's too good to avoid again. If you can tell me one thing that a disciple of Jesus does, children, if you can tell me one thing that a disciple of Jesus does, I indeed have a treat for you. Adults, maybe even two treats for you. So great incentive this morning. We somewhat parachuted into Matthew 28, the very last verses of this chapter in Matthew. Now, up to this point, in case you need the backstory, Jesus had lived a sinless life. He had done great miracles, profound teachings, and he had rebuked seriously the outwardly religious. And as we heard in verse 5, on account of that, he was crucified. In fact, he was executed by the religious order and under the authority of the Roman governor or the Roman ruler in that place. Now, his death was preceded by mocking, by torture, by being stripped naked and nailed to a wooden cross. As you might imagine, all of his followers who hoped he'd be a king to overthrow Rome were pretty devastated, dismayed, even abandoning him. So, when we come to Matthew 28, we have a front row seat to the most stupendous event in all of history. A man, a God-man has resurrected from the dead never to die again. And when we, when we understand who Jesus is, our only response is to become his disciple, to worship him. So who is this man Jesus? First question. Who is this man? Well, Matthew, throughout his book, wants to make it clear. Jesus himself, or Jesus rather, is God himself in the flesh. He is the savior of sinners. Jesus means savior. And even in Matthew 1, Jesus receives the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yeah. Matthew goes on to prove Jesus to be God by showing that people worshipped him as such throughout his book. If you remember at his birth, he's worshipped by wise men or kings who come from afar bringing amazing gifts to him. He's worshipped by the diseased, the disabled, the downtrodden, and the discounted all throughout Matthew. And then in Matthew 28, by two devoted Marys. And in verse 17, finally, by the disciples. He's worshipped. Why is this important? Why does this show that Jesus is God? Well, do you remember in Isaiah 42 what we heard? 
What did God say? I share my glory with no one. No one. So, for Jesus to receive worship, right? For people to worship him and him to receive it is saying, Matthew is saying Jesus is God. And Jesus says as much, even in the very last verse of Matthew 28. He says what? I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Jesus is stating that he is omnipresent, meaning he is present everywhere at all times, something only God can do. But there's more. The resurrected Jesus is God in the flesh, but verse 18 tells us more. Look with me at verse 18. Jesus here is alluding to a fulfillment of a prophecy or a vision from an Old Testament book called Daniel. Now, in that prophecy, it talks about a son of man who comes to the ancient of days, which is another name for God, and he receives something. He receives eternal dominion and glory from all peoples, nations, and languages forever. That's what the son of man receives. So who is this son of man? Well, verse 18 is showing, and Jesus is saying, that Daniel 7 is fulfilled with him. He is the Son of Man, the resurrected Son of Man who has come to God after completing his redemptive work of living without sin, of dying the death that sinners like you and I deserve, and rising again, resurrecting. Because of it, what does he receive that Daniel 7 shows? Eternal dominion, glory, all authority in heaven and on earth, it says. Now we might pause and wonder, as we should, How is it that there's an ancient of days and a son of man? I thought there's one God, right? Well, verse 19, as much of the New Testament does, sheds light on this mystery. See, Jesus says that new disciples must be baptized in the singular name. Look at there. Does it say names? No, it says name. Singular name. One God. And what's his name? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus says. The Father sent the Son. The Son came and died and rose again, receiving all authority. And the Spirit will be sent, at least in the story, already has been for us, but will be sent to empower God's people. And so we see one being, one God, and yet three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And we see that the Son receives authority. Now, as we reference authority here, we should ask, What does all authority in heaven and on earth mean? Maybe it seems self-explanatory. But when we talk about all authority in heaven and on earth, it doesn't necessarily mean locations. Like that those are actual just places. It's talking beyond that to even say the realms of things that are tangible and material and the things that are immaterial, are not tangible. Jesus has all authority, power, in both the universe that is seen and in what is unseen. There is no demon, no spirit, nothing that can't be seen that Jesus doesn't have authority over as well. As uh, as Americans, we have an interesting relationship with authority, don't we? You're not going to tell me what to do. It's America, right? And on one level we think that, but yet we know, we know that the person with the most authority in our country will shape the future, is shaping the future. And this is why in the coming presidential election, disciples of different candidates will put up signs, will paint sidewalks, will preach at rallies, and will post all over the internet 
about who, who should be given authority to be president. You see, we know that whether we like it or not, whether we say things like, not my president, or whatever it may be, we know that the one with the most authority is due our allegiance at some level, that he shapes the future. Why do we say this? Why do we point this out? Because the Bible makes clear, it actually shouts to us, Jesus is no elected official. You grant Jesus no authority. He already has it. He, the crucified and resurrected Savior of the world, the Son of God and Son of Man, already has all authority in every possible sense of the word. So Christian or non-Christian here, churched person or unchurched or de-churched person here, this means not only that Jesus deserves your allegiance, but he also deserves your worship. He deserves your worship. And worshiping Jesus is the foundation of being a disciple. It's the foundation of being a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple in the most basic sense is a learner. But it goes more, it's, it's more than that. A disciple is one who forms their thinking, their, their interests, their allegiances, and their affection around a thing or a person. What are you a disciple of? Today, in a few hours, the disciples of the Green Bay Packers will happily display their allegiance, affection, and attention until they lose. Every day, people show themselves to be disciples of political candidates, of internet personalities, of exercise coaches. You can do it. One more mile, five more minutes, of authors, and beyond. How much of your daily time is spent on those things and those people, on becoming disciples of those things? How much of it is spent becoming a disciple to the one who has all authority in every sense of the word? An increasing number of people in America are beginning to realize they need a better authority. They need to become disciples of someone who can actually help them. The dollar dips. Inflation rises. You can't find the job you want. You can't provide for your family. Students study wondering if they'll be able to have a job or provide for a family. Many authorities feed on you and are not concerned about you being fed. See, you need an authority who cares not just about you being fed, right, when he says things like pray for your daily bread. But you need an authority who also cares about you being fed forgiven. You need an authority who sheds his blood that you would receive what? Life. Life eternal with him. So this morning, whether you are churched, unchurched, de-churched, having, having left the church, the church altogether, the call is the same to you today. When you see who this man Jesus is, the resurrected Jesus, all authority bearing, you must Become a disciple of Jesus. That means learning, loving, and living for him. Fixing your life around him. Also that you might have life and you might have joy and purpose in glorifying this authority. 
Become his disciple by worshiping. Become his disciple by worshiping him. That's what disciples do. Even when they doubt sometimes or hesitate, as it says in that verse 17, we become his disciple in worshiping him. Let's go to our our second question. Look with me there. Uh, The second question is, what is his mission? To answer that, we actually must know why we are here in the first place. People have only been asking that question for, I don't know, 10, how many millennia we want to say we've been around. The answer to that question is that God, out of his own abundant being, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, chose to reveal his glory by creating a people for himself whose joy would be full in glorifying him. If we said it simpler still, what did God make you for? To be with him, to be with his people. And that's what happened in the beginning. And after mankind sinned against God, the mission to restore this fellowship began. That mission then progressed by, man, by God choosing one man, Abraham, and his descendants to be his people. So God moved his plan forward. And in the Old Testament, those descendants are called Israel and later on called the Jews. Well, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And God faithfully goes to save them out of Egypt. He takes them to a mountain. He reveals his power and authority to them there. And then he gives them instruction, commission of how they are to live with him now. To learn, to love, to live by his law. Really, to be disciple-like, if we want to say it in a language from this text. Also that they could live with him, right? God being their God, he being his people. See the mission there. Well, if the people of God had been faithful to God's instruction, of course they weren't, of course we aren't, it would have shown the surrounding nations that the true God lived in Israel. You see, the mission was that as the nations saw that there was a God among those people, they would stream in to Israel to worship that God. It was an, is an inward drawing of the nations. Well, the people due to our sinful nature failed. Yet God's mission to restore fellowship could not. Right? God would, save, would come to save his people. How? By coming himself, the son putting on flesh. But look with me here, verse 16 through 20. Okay, Trace this with me. Because we're actually seeing a similar scene to the one I just described in Exodus. Right? But there's a new commission given. So Jesus has just saved his people through dying and rising for them, ending enslavement, not to Egypt, but to sin, and purifying a people to be with God. Remember the mission? And in verse 16 and 17, Jesus calls his disciples to meet him where? On a mountain. And what does he do there? Well, they worship him when they come, but what does he then do? Verse 18, he reveals his authority and power. Verse 19, Jesus gives a new instruction, a new commission. They are to still live faithfully in such a way that when the nations looked at them, they'd say, there's a God among those people. But disciples of Jesus are now also to stream out to the nations, to the world. In verse 20, Jesus then promises the very substance of what the mission has always been about, God and his people. What does he say? I am with you always to the end of the age, the mission. So what is Jesus' new or great commission adding to God's mission from the beginning? 
Well, Jesus is making clear that his people, the church, is not only for gathering to worship as disciples do, that's what we do every week when we gather, but we are also intended to go out. We are to march forth with a message on our lips about a resurrected Jesus and all his authority and that he will save any who become his disciple. Let me ask a question. What is the difference between a hospital and an army? And you might say, why do you ask? Of course, there are many things that are different about the two. But one of them is that a hospital is inward focused, right? Gathering in, helping, healing, sheltering, keeping safe from the dangers outside, whereas an army typically is forward moving. The mission rules and everything is utilized for the success of the mission. You see, the early church saw itself like an army of messengers and not a hospital. A new king who had all authority was ruling. He had taken up rule. He died and resurrected to save sinners like you and me. And so they marched. Where did they march? From table to table, from house to house, from city to city. Right? They believed, they were convinced that if the world does not become disciples of Jesus, it is lost. So they marched. Today, Christians tend to think of the church more like a hospital. Right? If you're hurt, sick, depressed, come on in. We're here already. See, a hospital mindset isn't entirely bad. Right? People's, people's hurts do, in fact, matter immensely. We, we are to care and shepherd Weep with those who weep. But the church must be a military hospital, if you will. We don't disregard the hurts, but we are on the move. We received, we received six sinners so that they would be redeemed and they'd be recommissioned and sent out to the world with the news of the resurrected Jesus. When Pastor Matt and I moved here and told people we were going to start another church, plenty of people asked, Really? Does Eau Claire need another church? They're wondering, don't, don't we already have enough of those for people with problems to go to? See, the truth of Western Wisconsin is that if we filled every gospel-believing, triune God-worshipping church to capacity, there would yet be tens of thousands of people who would be unable to come in. And even more, even more honestly, Far too few churches understand that Jesus' commission is an outward one. We're not building it so that they will come. We're building the people so that they will go. We don't equip or challenge the church to go. For the church folks here, how do you see the church? How do you see the church? Is it a hospital? Is it a university, right? You're here to learn, gain intellect. Is it a gated community where you hide from the mess out there? For the unchurched and dechurched folks who have joined us today, how do you think the church views you? We would love to know. Before you leave, please tell us. What do you think the church thinks of you? And wherever the church has failed has failed or is growing in faithfulness to go and tell you, the world about Jesus, understand that Jesus never fails in the mission. 
God's mission still for the unchurched and dechurched is to bring you to himself. That's why he came. That's why he sent the church. There's a song that says it well. Indeed, the children at least know the first verse. We all know the first verse of Jesus loves me. Right? This I know for the Bible tells me so. But the test, you'll get an extra uh, treat, child, children, if you know this. The second verse to that hymn is what? Jesus loves me. He who... Jill's going to get a treat. Uh, Jesus loves me. He who died. Heaven's gates are open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let the little child come in. See, for the unchurched and dechurched here today or in the surrounding community... Heaven's gates are open wide if they will become a disciple of Jesus. Churched folks, see, you must see and begin to understand the mission, the commission is essential to what we do. We don't just come in, we go out because heaven's gates are yet open if those out there will become disciples. Well, if Jesus' great commission reorients our understanding of the church going out, outward, then how will it get done? Third question, last one. Who or what are the means of its fulfillment? The answer in short, like all good Sunday school answers is, Jesus, right? But it's Jesus through you. It's Jesus through making you a disciple-making disciple. Come back to verse 19 with me. If you look there, there's actually only one command, one. It's make disciples. It's even just one word in the Greek, make disciples. The word, the other words there, going, it's actually the word, it's go, that we read, but in in the Greek, it's going, because it's assuming. It's a participle for all you English folks. Uh, It's assuming you're going, right? Whether across the hall, the street, the world. Two, Making a disciple means baptizing them. Now, baptism for the Jew likely first would bring to mind ritual cleansing before worship. That's, this is a special word that would, would be referencing more than anything, washing. In Jesus' day, though, it had become the typical sign act of a non-Jew converting to Judaism, or a Gentile, right, becoming a Jew in some way. Not they couldn't become one, but at least practicing their faith. But see what Jesus does here. He expands baptism to be the initiating sign act for Christians to mark their belonging to God. And here he says, naming their faith in the name, singular, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, God always gives tangible signs of his love to his people. That's what sacraments are. He says, I love you, and here I will prove it to you with this tangible thing. They mark and confirm his people. The third word it, it has that describes it is teaching. Teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. This sounds like that Old Testament mountain experience, right? We got instructions again. Another command. See, to make a disciple who says they believe in Jesus, but they don't care to learn, love, or live according to his commands is not really a disciple. As the apostles and the disciples go, if we were to watch it play out, which we can in the book of Acts, as they go out to do this commission, there is a particular pattern that forms. It takes on the shape of local churches planted everywhere. Kingdom outposts as armies march forth. 
And this truth works two ways here. What this means is that the Great Commission is not about making individuals into disciples who are irrespective of the rest of the church. No, that doesn't make sense. Individuals who become disciples irrespective of the body. But instead, it shows that people become disciples of Jesus and find their home in a collective body where they worship. They gather weekly, the first day of the week, to worship. And they have sacraments, tangible signs of God's love, like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the ongoing faithful teaching of the word happens there. It's what we see through the book of Acts in the early church. But this truth works the other way too. The church, in fulfilling the Great Commission, what does it look like? It looks like a collective of disciple-making disciples. That's what the church is, a collection of disciples who make disciples. In March of 2010, a pastor just down the road, I believe some of you may even know, personally, uh, in Minneapolis, uh, his name was John Piper, still is, he's still with us. He said this in one of his books. He says, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions, that means going out, right, to share the gospel, exists because worship doesn't. Now, obviously what he meant was that missions exist because people aren't worshiping or being disciples of Jesus, right? Because everyone worships. It's impossible not to. But I think we can take this farther. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And worship doesn't exist because too often we, Christians, are not disciples who make disciples. There are a few things that I think keep churched people, folks, Christians, from doing this. I think one of those things is that we don't see people for who or what they are. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, part of what Matt read this morning in the assurance of salvation is that the love of Christ is to control us because it says Jesus died so that all might live for him and not for themselves. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says if if you believe this, then you can no longer look at people from simply a human perspective. You can't just look at them from a human perspective. You must see people around you in their relation to God or their lack thereof. You must begin to see past your coworkers' very annoying tendencies. You must begin to see past your neighbors' political affiliations, their bumper stickers, and their signs out in the front yard. Parents, you must see that your first disciples are your children. God has chosen them to be in your family. It's your first disciples. When you hear make disciples, look at the little humans God gave you. That's where it starts. For everyone, for people around you, whoever is around you, you were put in their networks, into their families, sharing their last name with them, in their workplaces to tell them about the resurrected Christ. That is why you live at this point in history. You could have lived at any time. God put you here now at this point in history in America, in Wisconsin, in Eau Claire, or any surrounding area. God did not make a mistake. We must see people. We must see people. Second, we don't know what Jesus teaches well enough. Uh, Michael Green has this book called Evangelism in the Early Church, and he says that people today who do evangelism don't know any theology. 
And he says, the people who know theology don't do any evangelism. We must learn who Jesus is. You must learn who Jesus is through personal study of the Bible, through family worship at home, and through gathering on the first day in worship together. We must continue to come to learn. You cannot tell people about what you don't know. And if you know, if you have learned, by God's grace, you must begin to open your mouth. You must walk across the street, preferably with a plate of cookies and a couple questions to ask. And thirdly, of why, what keeps us from making disciples is that we, as disciples, Christians, too regularly worship other things other than Jesus. And our lives don't look like Christians' lives do. It's hard to make disciples of others when we don't live like it ourselves. The, uh, if I paraphrase, miss, the missiologist uh, Leslie Newbegin, he says that the most convincing thing to people who don't know the truth, or frankly in our day don't even know what they are, right? The most convincing thing is when Christians genuinely live for, love Christ. Why? Because it produces a transformed life. You begin to look different and you treat them different. And in truth, all of this, all of this, how is it able to finish this, this who or what is the means? As we're challenged with these things today, the means is who? Jesus. Jesus through you. Jesus has to change us to make us ready to go out. You see, if Clearwater Presbyterian Church ever hopes to be obedient to the Great Commission, to be a collective of disciple-making disciples, then we must begin by seeing people. We must understand that we live right now for them, that, we've been, that we're next door for them. And we must also commit to being taught what Jesus says, committing ourselves to come back to worship Christ with the church whether here or another faithful church. But we must come back. Let me close with this today. Prior uh, to World War II, America was doing all it could to get its house in order, right? After all those years of economic depression, and lo, it was the attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, right, which jump-started America's economy. So they brought them into the war, and it transformed their mindset, a month after the attack, a National War Production Board was created, and America reshaped its life around a single vision, mission, and goal. They were mindful of rubber, plastic, and paper in order to save them, and metals for that matter. Automakers built guns and trucks and tanks and aircraft engines. Toy train companies built pieces of warships, and aluminum companies manufactured planes. March, march, march. See, they marched towards victory. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you've become a disciple worshiping him, Christian, the war is won. The resurrected Jesus, who has all authority, is already king. He's already king. And he rules and he reigns. And yet, there are still those on this planet, there are still those who are not yet disciples. We are still an army of messengers marching forth to tell the news. So what must you do today? You must become a disciple-making disciple. You must become a disciple-making disciple. You do this by first becoming a disciple yourself. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Live, love, and learn him. 
After that, you need to understand that the Great Commission is for you. It falls into your lap as part of the church. It's not for just someone else. It's for us who know Christ. And then finally, you become a disciple-making disciple by seeing people, by learning what he taught, and by God's grace and the Spirit in you. You begin to go to those around you, telling them what? Jesus loves me. He who died, heaven's gates, they're open wide for you if you become a disciple of Jesus today.